Well, it seems like the number of people joining is slowing down. So why don't we get started with our time together? As is usual, we'll start off with some quiet meditation time together to settle in before we begin the process of inquiry. So please find a comfortable position. Take care of your posture. Take good care of your body for these few minutes. We'll sit for about 10 minutes.
Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> My name is Todd Bankler. If I don't know you, I'm one of the entrusted, newly entrusted teachers at Appamata in Austin. Uh, Flint is traveling, starting or continuing his world travels. So uh, I'll be filling in for you this week. So welcome to Inquiry. I was thinking about what little offering to bring to you guys for inquiry this week. And uh, what I wanted to, to, the main purpose of my even being here is to support and encourage your practice. So that's my intent. And when thinking about, you know, what people find supportive and encouraging to continue a long, some sometimes a seemingly never-ending, onerous process of practice, we need a little encouragement. And going back, you know, it's probably a thousand years, there's a there's a traditional little set of encouragements that have been given to students along the way in the form of the 10 ox herding pictures, right? Or uh, the 10 bulls or Kakawan's 10 bulls. And these are just little vignettes describing stages of practice. Of course, as the teachings will tell us, there are no stages of practice, but it's helpful to, to look at it in this way and people find them encouraging. <clears throat> so the ox in the ox herding pictures or the bull represents enlightenment, finding the traces of enlightenment, finding enlightened mind and enlightened activity. And they're, they're lovely little pictures along with a, a verse that goes with each. I'll try and show you some of them. Uh, it won't be too easy, but let's see. So this is, this is uh, the second, finding traces of the ox. Let me find the first. Where was the first one? Here we go. So we begin where we all begin, searching for the ox. How do I hold it? There we go. Searching for the ox. There's no ox in the picture. Just a person going about their business. In the verse it says, In the pasture of this world, I endlessly push aside the tall grasses in search of the bull, following unnamed rivers, lost upon the interpenetrating paths of distant mountains, my strength failing and my vitality exhausted. I cannot find the bull. I only hear the locusts churring through the forest at night. This is the search. Perhaps we've seen someone who seems to embody something or we've heard stories of 
the bull's existence. We're searching, we're not finding. Finding traces of the ox. There's footprints in the picture. All along the riverbank under the trees, I discover footprints. Even under the fragrant grass, I see his prints. Deep in remote mountains, they are found. These traces no more can be hidden than one's nose looking heavenward. It can't be hidden once you found the trace of the bull. He seems to be everywhere. Three, finding the ox. Focus. You can see the little black figure, that's the, that's the back half of the bull sticking out from behind a tree. I hear the song of the nightingale. The sun is warm, the wind is mild, willows are green along the shore. Here, no bull can hide. What artist can draw that massive head, those majestic horns? So he's caught a glimpse. This represents our first, maybe our first insights, our first awakenings that we stumble into, mostly accidentally. Finding feelings of oneness, catching our first glimpse that maybe all the old stories are true. And there's a reason these uh, poetic expressions were developed in the first place. Now we're getting into it. Whoops. Catching the ox. I seize him with a terrific struggle. His great will and power are inexhaustible. He charges to the high plateau far above the cloud mists, or in an impenetrable ravine he stands. Notice the struggle in that one. Five, taming the ox. Now you can see the ox walking behind him on a little tether. The whip and rope are necessary, else he might stray off down some dusty road being well-trained, he becomes naturally gentle. Then, unfettered, he obeys his master.
six. Coming home on the back of the ox. Mounting the bull slowly, I return homeward. The voice of my flute intones through the evening. Measuring with handbeats the pulsating harmony, I direct the endless rhythm. Whoever hears this melody will join me. Seven. There's no ox in the picture. The ox forgotten. The seeker alone. Astride the bull, I reach home. I am serene. The bull, too, can rest. The dawn has come. In blissful repose within my thatched dwelling, I have abandoned the whip and rope. Eight. Sorry, I'm getting. Ox and seeker both forgotten. Whip, rope, person, and bull all merge in no thing. This heaven is so vast, no message can stain it. How may a snowflake exist in a raging fire? Here are the footprints of the patriarchs. Nine. Return to the source and origin. Too many steps have been taken, returning to the root and the source. Better to have been blind and deaf from the beginning. Dwelling in one's true abode, unconcerned with that, without. The river flows tranquilly on and the flowers are red. And the last one, the 10th Oxford picture. 
entering the marketplace. Barefoot and naked of breast, I mingle with the people of the world. My clothes are ragged and dust laden, and I am ever blissful. I use no magic to extend my life. Now, before me, the dead trees become alive. So this is a wonderful little imagined phases and states of practice that we go through on the journey of hearing about enlightenment, catching our first glimpse, finding the footprints, then catching the first glimpse, struggling with what it is, trying to master it and ride it, directing it like the Pied Piper to bring your friends along, releasing the bowl, releasing yourself, And just like the Bodhisattva vow, where does it ultimately go? It ultimately goes with them saying, hmm, might have been better to be deaf and blind and forget the whole thing in the beginning. But eventually, in the 10th frame, there's no bull. There's just a return to the marketplace, which represents everyday life. It's bringing that presence and that big mind, that Bodhi mind, back to the marketplace, back to the grocery store and the bank, your place of work and school, sharing it with the others. And that doesn't mean talking about it. Could be. Now from Suzuki Roshi's, not always so. It's one of my favorite quotes from Suzuki Roshi. He was speaking, you know, giving a talk and he said that Zen and our Zen practice could be summed up in two words, not always so. Not sticking to enlightenment. Real enlightenment is always with you. So there's no need for you to stick to it or even to think about it. Because it is always with you, difficulty itself is enlightenment. Your busy life itself is enlightened activity. That is true enlightenment. Hui Ning, the sixth ancestor said, to dwell on emptiness and to keep a calm mind is not Zazen. He also said, just to sit in a cross-legged posture is not Zen. At the same time, I always say to you, just sit. If you don't understand what our practice is and stick to the words, 
you'll be confused. But if you understand what real Zen is, you will know that the ancestors' words are a kind of warning for us. This talk was given at the end of a, a session, a, a practice intensive. So he's giving some instructions now about re-entry into the marketplace. Coming out of the session. Now our session is almost at an end and soon you will be going back to your homes and becoming involved in your everyday activity. If you have been practicing true Zazen, you may be happy to go back to your everyday life. You may feel encouraged to go back. But if you feel hesitant to go back to your city life or everyday life, it means that you still stick to Zazen. That is why the sixth ancestor said, if you dwell on emptiness and stick to your practice, then that is not true Zazen. When you practice Zazen moment after moment, you accept what you have now in this moment and you are satisfied with everything you do. Because you just accept it, you don't have any complaints. That is Zazen. Even if you cannot do that, you know what to do. Then sitting Zazen will encourage you to do other things as well. Just as you accept your painful legs while sitting, you accept your everyday life, which may be more difficult than your Zazen practice. If you have come to have a taste of real practice and then return to your busy activity without losing the taste of practice, that will be a great encouragement. Even though it is difficult and even though you are busy, you will always have a taste of calmness in your mind, not because you stick to it, but because you enjoy it. When you enjoy it, you don't have to stick to it. So if you have a real taste of our practice, you can enjoy it all the time, whatever you do. You may think you have attained enlightenment, but if you are busy or in some difficulty, and think you need to have that experience again, that's not real enlightenment because it is something you're sticking to. Real enlightenment is always with you. So there's no need for you to stick to it or even think about it. Because it is always with you, difficulty itself is enlightenment. Your busy life is enlightened activity. That is true enlightenment. So we come to a place like this to practice. I'm all out of focus. What happened? Hello, camera. Yeah, you've gone out. Oh. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> we develop this larger container, this ability to be with what's here with our lives. 
practicing on the cushion. But we have to leave all that behind. We can't stick to it. We have to go back to the marketplace and rejoin our friends and family. And hopefully, without being aware of it, we're bringing a little bit of this cool, clear water from the mountaintop down and sharing it with our friends. Not sticking to enlightenment, not dwelling on emptiness, rejoining the marketplace barefoot, ragged clothes, in all of our imperfections, and celebrating what's happening. Reb Anderson used to say that Zazen, when we sit in Zazen, unmoved, upright, and dignified, we're expressing this attitude. Thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. But that's our expression in Zazen, to express this mind of, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. But as we walk this path together, we know it doesn't always go that way. And sometimes it's helpful to get together with our spiritual friends and see the ways that we're stuck with enlightenment, see the ways we won't let go of it, to talk about them together and meet them together. So if you're feeling a little stuck and want to inquire about it, the virtual chair is open. I've never Hi, Sheila. Hi. I've never spoken in inquiry, but I think I'm a I'm stuck in enlightenment a bunch of places, if that's possible. But anyway, I think I'm stuck somewhere in there between nine and ten. I'm not sure. I love the ox herding pictures, but I hadn't heard that poem or that writing with them. And the when it a point that I think I'm a little stuck at is when it says it, it would be better never to have heard or seen. And I understand some truth for me in that. But then it goes on and says a little something about and the river flows and flowers are red, even though I imagine no eyes, no ears, no tongue, no voice, no seeing, no hearing, but still, still it said, whoever wrote that, the river flows and flowers are red. And then it goes on and eventually you disappear and the boat disappears and then eventually you go into the marketplace as 
an, a quote messenger um, sharing, living it, mm -hmm. hopefully living it in a busy, active life and enjoying, I would, I think, enjoying what is. With eyes and ears and nose and all witness. Anyway, so I don't know if I'm stuck or if it's just a little bobble. <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting and I'm glad to be on the ox herding path or maybe we're not, maybe we're, you know, it's just a metaphor for one way of looking at the whole thing. Anyway, I'm eager to hear anything you or anybody else or and ever anybody else wants to say about that little bobble, about a kind of denial of the beauty of the universe, the, this reality, if I can call it that way, as if there were two realities, that there are multiple realities or something. Anyway, that's that's my inquiry. What do, you, what do you, Todd, and other folks feel about that? No eyes, no ears, no tongue, no all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's true too something but it's a little bit of a stumble for this old physicist or chemist <laughs> other <type of> person <laughs> okay shut up well, thank you for speaking up it's thank good you. to hear your voice in here so thank you you got in the hot seat today <laughs> i think the the comment in the seventh or eighth picture, wherever it was, about better to have been blind and deaf from the beginning, is addressing the difficulty in, in letting go of our ideas of it, right? That by that time is 70 or 80% of the way through those pictures and paths, and is just starting to realize that he's been stuck on this idea of attaining it the whole time. And that maybe this map of the universe, this map that's been created of this practice path is never really fundamentally true to begin with. And maybe it was best not to be chasing it. That's how I interpret the better to have not known in the first place. Of course, the other side of that is coming from someone who's realized it and who's living it, right? And that being deaf and blind and not hearing about it in the first place doesn't honor the fact that he wasn't, they wouldn't have been living with it at the beginning, living it out in the beginning. Thank you. I think it's certainly, may I speak? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's certainly easier, or it would be certainly easier if we had never known things and it was no thing from the beginning. But the journey 
And that other reality, quote unquote, is also in my heart, wonderful. <laughs> so I guess I'll keep trucking. <laughs> and your big picture helps, your big picture. Thank you. Keep trucking, that's all we can do. <laughs> We're all trucking together. I wanted to say uh, thank you, Todd, for uh, sharing this today. I've always seen your name on all the emails we get, but it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, but I was so excited when you brought up the ox herding pictures because it made me think about this beautiful book I have in my library. And it, it's called, uh, can anybody see that? The Disappearing Ox, and it's by uh, Lewis Hyde and Max Gimblet. So it's a modern version of a contemporary Buddhist tale. And it's just really great with all its um, beautiful paintings, like searching for the ox here. Um, anyway, I didn't know if anybody else would like to learn about that too, because it's such an amazing story or stories or sketches or that, you know, it's being able to have inquiry like this is such a gift because it takes us to that, that whole search and discovery process that, you know, sort of the meaning of life that we have. So I guess I just wanted to share that and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. There's also a, a great little version of the the 10 bulls that comes, I don't know where, it comes from somewhere out of the American Southwest. And they're redone in kind of a mess, American Western format with a cowgirl roping the bull and riding the bull. So I love that version for those of us in Texas. <laughs> Thank you. We have Bridget next. Hi, Todd. Hi, Bridget. Well, that's what came to mind before you mentioned the the cowgirl, um, because on Tuesdays I'm I usually clean my house and then I stop so that I can join inquiry. But today I listen to country and western music. That's what I was brought up on because I was born in Pecos, Texas which is the home of the world's first paid rodeo. So when you showed the figure where he's um, leading it around on the tether and then he gets up on it, I thought, oh gosh, don't, you know, I thought of Willie Nelson's song, <laughs> mothers don't let your boys grow up to want to be cowboys. <laughs> and um, of course, by the time I was 13, we moved to a big city. So I had to completely change my persona in order to fit in. But I'd actually aspired to be rodeo queen of America um, because there was a girl from Pecos who got to go to New York City and be on uh, to tell the truth. So you never know what's going to happen um, in terms of the ox or whether it's a bull or, but I like the idea that you said um, that it could be turned into a story about a cowgirl. Thanks. I've, mm -hmm. I'd never seen these, uh, this before, so I'm really glad to, to be introduced to it. Thank you. You're welcome. 
they've long been used as a little map and a little source of encouragement for people making their way down the path. Kim, Kim next. So, uh, one of the things I think we do when we see the the ox pictures is we we try to uh, jump ahead. We think, well, all we have to do is go go to the marketplace, or all we have to do is is uh, uh, throw away the oxen ourselves, or or whatever. And I remember at one point I I was having lunch with my first teacher, and he said, "You seem to be rushing things. You have many lifetimes, you know." And that kind of put that whole path thing in perspective. And also today in the Heart Sutra, um, the words "no path" jumped out. Which, which is so curious because we talk so much about the path, but, but I think um, the tricky business is really um, that even though we know the, the path, if there is one, um, we can't be anywhere different from where we are. And one more thing is I've often thought about the idea of a 10,000 photograph photographer and how you can't ever be there without taking 10,000 photographs. And uh, no matter how hard you try or how many books you read or how smart you are. So, so it's that kind of thing, like you're just where you are. So that's all. Yeah, it's helpful to remember that these were created from to appeal to kind of the normal dualistic nature of the mind, to our human need to um, break down, categorize reality, put it into stages, put it into linear process. Because people find this helpful on this long journey. Right? You get tired or frustrated, want to give up. But it's good to remember that it's just all made up. You can't take reality, you can't split it into 10 phases, into 10 pictures, into this one comes after that one, right? All that's just your imagination trying once again to split up reality into something else. So in that case, you know, in that, in that perspective, it's completely misguided and we're giving people the wrong impression by bringing these 10 pictures out over and over again. It was the same lesson. I, I used to teach lithography and on the wall I had a list of the steps to process a litho stone and a famous printmaker came to my class and he looked at my list and he said, that's all wrong. 
And of course, I said, you know, what's the deal? He said, you can't, just like what you're saying, you can't reduce things to a list. That was a great teaching, too. But yet, if you want to pass this along to other humans, whose normal way of looking at the world is the reduced thing to steps and linearity, it sure is helpful for them. Yeah. Can you imagine if you just told your students, it's just a process, you'll figure it out, there's no steps. Like how many people would have ever have produced a single litho? Right, so usually your, your teachers are kind to you. They, they give you things to do when you first walk into Zendo. They teach you how to count your breath to three, right? But that's gonna help you. Knowing that they're gonna take that away from you next month or next year is completely untrue. This is kind of a similar thing. It's a very useful map until someone rips it out of your hands and tells you to quit relying on it. Have it next. Am I unmuted here? You are, yes. Okay, thank you. Um, hi, Todd, and um, thank you, first off, um, for, for the, the teachings and the inquiry session today. Um, very, very helpful. Um, those, those, those 10 images or those, those 10 pictures and, and the words that went with it, uh, the profundity that's in there is just immense. Um, <laughs> and it's like you could stop at each one and, and just ponder, ponder that and have inquiry on that uh, for a session or two or five. Um, and uh, I guess some of the things that were just said and something that Kim had just said um, relative to, to what we're doing and what things mean, like um, being on the road and the fact that there is no road, uh, the duality that's in there, uh, inherent in, in what we're doing, uh, is uh, is pointed out in, in those ten pictures. And obviously, I think that ninth one really brings it home in a, in a whole lot of different levels. Um, and uh, you know, my my craft that that I practice is photography. And um, you know, Flint said something some time back where uh, he said, in terms of uh, life as it is uh, there's there's kind of a three-step waltz there where you pause number one reflect number two and then connect number three and um, you know yes in terms of making a list <laughs> it is a list but it is helpful to have something where that list becomes um, ingrained and becomes a habit and a habit becomes a way of life um, this thing this of it goes away and with the photography, um, and I've been mulling this question over for, I don't even know how long, um, but one of the things that comes up, and it came up in February um, when we were in a session with, with Flint, and someone was asking, you know, why do you photograph? What, do you, what are you doing with that? And uh, it, as so many things have, it had kind of a twofold answer. And one of those answers um, was that, it's not so much what I'm doing with photography um, and imaging uh, as what imaging and photography is doing with and through me. 
uh, as you gain those states of awareness and, and try and express that. Um, and then on the other hand, um, you know, related to a couple of things that Kim just said, with my imaging, I'm practicing and I'm practicing making uh, the word, approximations of essence through um, making those approximations of essence visibly legible uh, in terms that, uh, that you can share and others can see uh, and, and react to. And um, I think that all falls in line with some of the aspects of, of the 10 ox herding pictures. And because we can never, you know, I've heard it said more times than not, if, if you can explain what enlightenment really is, you don't know enlightenment, <laughs> you can't explain it with words. So we're making those um, approximations of essence. And um, that in and of itself is something that, that feeds us as much as we share and may feed others. And that's my ramble, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. The lists are helpful, right? Yes. They are. That's how we build up the, the practice and the muscle memory until it's time to release them back to the wild and try yeah. and try and take it as a whole. There's a there's a phrase that keeps coming back through the Zen stories and I think predate Zen from India. I was trying to find some references to them earlier, but you'll hear this phrase of, or metaphor of swallowing the river, the Ganges River in one gulp, right? The Ganges River is the, was the biggest river, right? Unimaginably large, thousands of miles wide. What does it mean to swallow the river in one gulp? Masters kept saying, you must swallow the river Ganges in one gulp. It's the, that's the antithesis of lists. That's all at once. That's all at once, all together. Just one picture. No steps. I guess it's the same thing as that um, saying that before enlightenment, you know, I chopped wood and carried water. And after enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. Thank you very, very much for today. Okay, we have Liz next. Hi. It's good to see you, Todd. I saw you um, this weekend and missed going to talk to you in person. Yeah. So thank you for meeting yeah, us today. I saw you as well. Sorry we didn't get to say hi. Yeah, it's nice to see you. So I have a question and it's probably too broad for a four minute conversation, but I'm curious um, if you have ever had a situation in your practice where you felt like a teaching from your teacher was not kind or enlightened and how you dealt, dealt with that. Yeah, I think we all, we all have those moments. Um, Suzuki Roshi, as in his talks, you know, most people have quite a bit of trouble with their teachers and find it difficult because they're usually pointing to something um, 
that we don't see yet that looks from our normal lens might look like yeah, unkindness. And then we have the unfortunate human reality that all the teachers are just humans and maybe they're just being unkind and acting out of their own conditioning. It's tough to tell. How would you know? Yeah, I think it's both are true, right? I think it's holding that both are true potentially. I think that's part, I think that's the initial step is that we are triggered and the triggers I've come to learn are really beautiful practice moments where you can really lean into the intelligence of the trigger rather than run from the trigger. I mean, these, these are all very common things, right? But then there's also this possibility that the rub from the teacher, you know, that, that their conditioning is meeting my conditioning and then how to really be with that, you know, and, and stay you know, I've got that that wonderfully rebellious part of me that's like, okay, well, then I'm going to walk away from my practice because this doesn't feel good to me. But I know that that's not the answer. So I was just, I was really wanting to just hear about about your process. Well, I think it's helpful to remember that it's not something that you have to do alone. Right? That. Those situations you're talking about arise in the meeting with the teacher. And they can be addressed in the meeting with the teacher and opened in the meeting with the teacher and not something that you bury or take away and try and figure out on your own. The other thing I'll say is, you know, we have our precepts, our ethical scaffolding for a reason. That a practice like this, um, with a focus on emptiness, impermanence, the hobgoblin of small mind, and the difficulty in figuring that out, makes it possible for people to rationalize all kinds of things. So just keep an eye on those precepts, on those ethical boundaries. If a teacher is crossing one of those, something's amiss, some rationalization's happening. If they're staying within those and you don't like it, <laughs> then maybe it's just worth some exploration in the space between you two. Well, I see we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much for your participation and helping to open each other up. We're all in this together and we don't have much time. So we'll end with our normal chant. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way.
Thank you, everyone. Don't stick to enlightenment. Enjoy your time in the marketplace. Smile while you do it. Thank you so much, Todd. And thank you all so much for being here today and helping to create this, this wonderful space. And if you'd like to make a donation to Appamada, please do go to um, the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. And there you'll see an opportunity to offer Dana to teachers such as Todd, Flint and Peg, as well as other teachers and other events. You can make a one-time donation or set up a regular donation and there's a little box on the donation site if you want to name where you want your donation to go to specifically so thank you all so much for, for being here and if you'd like to continue to meet and share and continue this conversation then please do join myself and others on the virtual porch for a further 30 minutes thank you all so much thank you <laughs>